We're in Acts chapter 20 this morning. Seventeen to thirty-eight is a large passage. I'm going to treat the the passage thematically under um, the, top, the the heading of a farewell address, and, and essentially what we're looking at is one Christian counseling other Christians to love and serve and care for other Christians. Hence, the change in um, the liturgical element of our secondary standards. Acts twenty verse seventeen. Hear the holy word of our holy and perfect God. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with all tears, with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds of afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not seek to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who are with me. Everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself has said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, this is the day that you've appointed for the corporate worship of your people, uh, Jesus Christ, to commemorate your victory over uh, death in the grave. It's Satan satisfaction of the Father's justice on behalf of your people. And Lord, we know that to, um, to live is to live unto you and to die is great gain because we go into your immediate presence. Help us live with that kind of a perspective. Cause us to recognize that we are servants, not lords and masters, and that we'd emulate you, Lord Jesus Christ. And even to the extent that we would stoop and wash our brothers and sisters' uh, feet, uh, Lord God, and serve them for your namesake. We would pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
What I want to do is just touch on a little bit the kind, the format of what we're looking at here. I took it all as one particular section because it is a section. It's a recorded speech. When you look at the Bible, you'll see that um, there's certain genres. Um, you have prophecies. You have historical narratives. And this is a particular recorded speech for us. Um, there are a number of kinds of recorded speeches that we find in the book of Acts. Most of them of, are of the evangelical kind, which is essentially the, the content of the gospel, the propositions of the gospel, that God has come, the second person of the Godhead, uh, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he's died for our sins, he's risen for our justification. And then as Paul repeats throughout the text, he says that we're to repent of our sins and believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. So that are, those are many of the speeches that we see recorded there. Another kind of a speech that we see recorded in the book of Acts, I would put as an apologetical kind or apologetical nature. And still that's evangelistic. It's, it's rehearsing the propositions of the gospel, but more in a, a legal or a courtroom setting. It's Peter or Paul before the Sanhedrin, it's the Apostle Paul before the Roman court. It's the notion of you are in court defending the truth of, of, of the Christian faith, which the essence of it is Christ crucified, died, and risen. The essence of that, but you're defending it in a courtroom. And then oftentimes in those courtroom proceedings, the apologetical the defense, um, there are deleterious consequences, um, legal deleterious consequences in Philip. Uh, physical uh, uh, when you defend the faith. That's where Jesus says, behold, I send you out as wolves and you're going to be hauled before the Sanhedrin. You're going to be hauled before the Gentilish rulers and things are going to go poorly for you. You'll have the victory, but you'll seal your testimony with your own blood. So you have the evangelical speeches. You have the apologetical speeches. The speech that we have here is of a different kind. I would argue that this is a pastoral speech. And so it's not specifically rehearsing the propositions of the gospel, though we do find it here. You can't, in the book of Acts, you can't, you can't go a page where you're not rehearsing the truths of the gospel over and over and over again. So it's still here in the pastoral advice. The cross of Christ, the grace of God, repent, believe, all throughout. But it's of a pastoral nature in that you have one pastor, one one religious teacher, preacher, apostle, that's Paul. He's counseling other pastor elders, that's the Ephesian elders, on how best to minister to, to the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pastoral advice. And so that's certainly what we have here. One minister counseling fellow ministers on how to minister, serve, the word for minister or servant is diakonos, deacon, to serve, or doulos, slave, Paul opens up almost all of his letters, a diakonos, a slave of Jesus Christ. So here you have one slave of Jesus telling other slaves of Jesus how to minister to their fellow slaves in Christ. And I'm using the term slave. To be Christ's slave is to be a God's freeman. And when we, were, when we didn't belong to Christ, we were slaves of the devil. So it's a pastoral speech, which is very important for us to understand so yes, there are propositional truths. We have the divine indicative, you must believe this, but this is very much the divine imperative. So these are moral religious indicative, uh, excuse me, imperatives. Do this to the elders. He says, I want you to serve your fellow Christians like this. So this is a do this passage. 
And then the last aspect of or nature of this speech is, it, it is um, it's a it's a farewell, it's a parting speech. If you've ever said goodbye to someone, and and, you, and here they're crying, um, at the, the elders are weeping over the apostle Paul because he says, "I'm never going to see you again in this life." Now, though he will never see them again in this life, they're together right now. And our brother prayed it. Um, it it's interesting. He and I, are, are, we're thinking a lot alike this morning, that we're but a vapor. Th this is one brother saying, I'm never going to see you again in this life. This is the last advice I give you on how to minister Christ to your fellow Christians. And they know it. We're never going to see him again in this life. Now, will we see one another as brothers and sisters who die in Christ? Will we see one another in the next life? Yes. But it is significant. Again, when you say goodbye to a loved one, particularly a loved believer, that you know in a few moments they're not going to be with you anymore. These are kind of words that are seared into your memory. These would be these kind. Of, so we have evangelical speech, speeches, apologetical speeches. This is a pastoral speech and a parting speech. That's what's going on. And as I say, this is a farewell address that he makes to the elders of the Ephesian church, and he's, he's teaching them explicitly and implicitly how to best minister Christ to um, Christ's people. So he's going to call for the elders, and then he's going to give the counsel for the elders. So the direct application of this particular passage is uh, obviously to ministers, to fellow elders, um, so the Apostle Paul was an extraordinary church officer, and he's writing to ordinary church officers. When I say extraordinary, I mean the apostles, real apostles. I know there are people now, Apostle Bob, Apostle Fred, Apostle Sally. I don't believe that. So I think the apostolic era is over. Once the close of canon, I'm a cessationist. Once the close of canon is, is done with the death of the last apostle, I don't believe any more apostles. I don't think they have the power of raising... Real apostles in the Bible can raise the dead. So I got my hair cut from a guy that I think he quasi was an apostle. And he said to me, oh, so you're a Presbyterian, and I'm a this, and I'm a that. And I, I didn't say, because I didn't want to get a bad haircut. Okie dokie, let me take you to my father's ashes, because I'd like you to reconstitute his ashes so I could have my dad back. You know, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, this is silly to me. So there, there, there are no more... Bible apostles. And so this is one extraordinary officer, an apostle, writing to ordinary church officers, pastors, elders, on how to... So that's the direct application. Now, for everyone that says, well, what about me as a not, not a church officer, a minister? The general application of how best to serve fellow Christians to their benefit and to the glory of Jesus is applicable to everyone. Uh, it's applicable to everyone. Are we, as Christians, our brother's keeper? Are we, as Christians, our brother's keeper? So in one general way, when I come at this, yes, it's minister to minister. But beyond that, we're all diakonos. And I, I understand not everyone's a church officer. I get that. No one, not everyone's a minister minister. I get that. I get that. Everyone, as a believer, is a sheep. And to some extent or another, we are, we, we are sheep that act in some capacity as shepherds to fellow sheep. I want you to think of who here is a mother who has little bitsies or big bitsies? You, this is applicable to you. 
This is applicable. How best to serve your fellow Christians, sheep, as a shepherd to benefit them. Now, there's terms that banty around in the Christian church, patriarchy, and it means father rule. And various people understand it variously. So I'll just throw this out there. Whoever is a a husband, whoever is a father, this is applicable to you. This everyone that is in some way has a position of authority, of influence for Christ as a Christian. This is applicable to you. How can I serve my wife? How can I serve my kids? How can I serve my grandchildren? How can I minister Christ to them? The Apostle Paul's advice is applicable. Does that make sense? And so if you look at the fifth commandment, the way that we understand the fifth commandment, if you, if you, if you flesh out, it's in the larger catechism, it's 123, question 123 to question 133. So 10 questions and answers. Every Christian exists either as a superior, equal, or an inferior. I hate to use those terms, but those are, are legitimate. We all do. Older sibling to younger sibling, all of this is applicable. Does it make sense? We are all our brother's keeper, all of us. So in some way or another, as Christians, we have been given life in Jesus Christ to minister Christ to other Christians. That's this. And how, how are we going to best do that to the glory of Jesus and to the benefit of another lover of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's Paul's advice. So primarily to, to ministers, but, but by extension, uh, everyone. I want to, I want to, I usually am, I'm top heavy in the front of my sermon. So Paul is in Ephesus. No, excuse me. Paul was in Ephesus. He's in Miletus. Miletus is so. Oh, let me think of my map in my head. You've got the Castor River, Aegean Sea. Thirty-five miles under Ephesus is Miletus. Miletus is a Grecian city. I think the Greeks subdivided into four tribes. And, and where he's at now, one of the tribes was the Ionians. I think the Athenians were part of the Ionians. Oh, I used to remember the other three. But he's in an Ionian city on the coast, 35 miles under Ephesus. So he sends to the elders up in Ephesus, 35 miles up. And then he's going to call for them back down. So I, even though I was a sociology major, major, I know 35 plus 35 is 70. Uh-huh. So 70-mile round trip. So he sends for the guys, and they come down. So we, we are looking at advice to fellow servants how to best serve fellow servants. Now, the apostle is extraordinary, as I mentioned, and he's a preacher teacher, but he takes other, I think, they could have sent guys up, I don't think, they could have sent them up by boat and then come down by boat the way that he came. More than likely, he sent them on a hike. So 35-mile walk up, 35-mile walk back. And I, I did the calculation, <laughs> but I my wife and I were talking. I'm like, how, how long would it take you to walk like 70 miles? At three, at three, minute, at three mile pace, mile per hour pace, it takes you like 23 and a half hours if you do straight. So they're likely taking 15 plus hours a day for four days, up and down. And my point with that is this. Not everyone has the same gifts in Christ. So the Apostle Paul is the Apostle Paul. And so he serves. We don't have this letter unless you have probably very stout young men making a 70-mile hike and some, I don't know how stout the elders were, but they make a 35-mile hike and then a 35-mile hike back up. And my point with that is this. 
God has placed us in the body where he has placed us in the body. Not every, there are two sexes, men and women. So if you're, a, if you're a woman, you can't be a preacher. So, but not all men are preachers. So, so you have some who are gifted and placed in the body where God places them for one particular gift. And then God places the rest of the members in the body where he places them. And then we serve Jesus by serving others where we're at with who we are and what we are. And so, Mike, Mike, Paul has this letter because these other servants had physical abilities to walk 70 miles, is my point. So the, the preacher has to preach, and the, the messenger has to travel, and the elders have to care for Christ's sheep. So if I were to ask you pastorally, when you look at this business, where has God placed you in the body? Where has God placed you in the body? Do, do you recognize your gifts? Do you recognize where you lack gifts? If you lack gifts and someone says, you should do this, I don't have those gifts, but I have a gift over here. And then and, and where he has placed you, we are to serve Christ where he has placed you. The other thing that we learn just generally from this Paul's preaching and teaching, and these guys are traveling, and these elders are called to, to work. We, we, we are conscientious Protestants. Sola Scriptura, we are justified sola fide by faith alone. That does not mean that we don't believe in good works. That's why I had us changed to, um, to the Confession of Faith, chapter 16. It's a caricature that the Catholic Church puts against us that we as Protestants think, well, you just believe in Jesus and then you live for like yourself and then you, you live in sin, you go to heaven. That's not true. The Christian life, and not, sadly, every once in a while you meet a person that thinks they're a Calvinist, but they're a hyper-Calvinist. They think, hey, I'm elect. Hey, predestination, put it in neutral. God's going to do everything. I'm going to the beach. You need to read the Bible. You need to read some confessional theology, some a confession of, of faith. The Christian life here, when he says, as a minister, Paul, to other fellow servants, these elders, us, I want you to serve. I want you to serve with blood, sweat, and tears. The Christian life is intensely active. Look at all the verbs that the Bible uses for the Christian life. It's a warfare. Here, you have enemies. It's a running race. It's a boxing match. It's a wrestling match. You're a farmer. You're out there, you're hoeing, you're breaking up the, the, the fallow ground. You're, you're sowing the seed, you're, you're watering. And then it's the building of a building. The Christian life is very, very active. And so if God has given you gifts, he always gives gifts to use, to serve. Ultimately for his glory. Also, we get to enjoy the gifts that he's given us. But it's joy in using them, serving for other people. So we learn that principally. He, he sends for the guys. Um, they're obviously going to make the trip, and then they come down to him. Look at verse 17. The recipients of the letter of this particular council, excuse me, are given three titles, two really, but one, another one by way of application. In verse 17, they're called elders. The, um, the, the word elder in Greek is presbyteros. The word elder in Greek is presbyteros. That's where, obviously, we get the word Presbyterian. Presbyterian means rule by elder. It's an aspect of church polity or church government. So each church, I know people are like, well, we're not denominational. Let's leave that aside. Most denominations will tell you who and what they are, at least a little bit about them, 
by their denominational name. And we are no different. The Baptists like to dunk, so they say dunkers, essentially Baptists. And, and then, but that, that's another uh, sermon as well. Presbyterians rule by elder. That's verse 17. And then look at 28. In verse 28, you have two titles being ascribed to the men that are receiving this counsel. They're called bishops or overseers. Overseer is the little. No, bishop is the transliteration of the Greek. The Greek is episkopoi, episkopoi. And that's a compound word, which means overseer. So, and then the other uh, uh, title I would ascribe to these fellows are their, their shepherds. Another word for shepherd is their pastors. So the elder is who they, these are the same guys. I know if you're an Anglican or an Episcopalian, you see elders as one person, and then you see the bishop as another, holding another office. As Presbyterians, we believe they're both the same guy. This would be a passage why. When he says, hi, I'm talking to you uh, presbyteroi, elders, these presbyteroi are the episcopoi. They are the bishops. So this would be an example of why I am in my church government, why I am a Presbyterian and I'm not an Episcopalian or an Anglican. So we see the elder and the bishop as the same person and the elder is who he is and the overseer is what he does. And then the shepherding or the pastor is also applicable to what he does. Does that make sense? And so when he's called an elder, uh, so if you were to look for, if you were to look for, where do I find the Bible talking about elders and deacons, church officers? I believe, again, that there are two, I know it's two and a half, what we say, or three office view. But primarily in the Bible, New Testament, you have two office bearers. You have elders, given various names, and then you have deacons. First Timothy chapter 3 I want to say it's verses 1 through, I don't know, 13, something like that. First part is elders, uh, uh, bishops, and then the second part is deacons. And then also, I think Titus chapter 1 talks about the qualifications of, of an elder. One of the qualifications for an elder is he can't be a 19-year-old kid riding a bike wearing a little thing that shows up at you. He can't, he can't be a young person. Now, this kind of gets dicey because I know some of the reformers writ, wrote their first theology at like five years old. So I'll just leave those guys aside. Generally, when we call a person that's leading the church, caring for Christ's church, an elder, generally, not always, wisdom comes with what? H. H. When I was a kid, if you were a kid and there were parents talking or adults talking, they sent you out of the house. And if you started talking to the adults while the adults were talking, they would rebuke you and send you out of the house. I'm not saying we should do this now, but it might be a helpful idea. Because I, I don't want to talk to a 10-year-old kid or a 15-year-old kid or an 18-year-old kid on the level of a 40, 50, 67-year-old person because you're not there. I'm not saying we talk down to them, but you are not there. Does that make sense? And so when we call these guys elders, they, and it's, it's, it is chronological, but it's walk with Jesus longer. It's walk with Jesus longer. You know more. You know more in content, and you know more in wisdom. And that's these men. And the Bible will say not to make a young, a young convert should not be an elder. I don't care if the guy's 50, but he was converted yesterday. He should not be in the pulpit. 
because he's going to fall under the condemnation of the devil because it's the pride. He's going to think, hey, wow, I've been a Christian an hour and a half. You've been a Christian for 50 years. I'm the elder. That's a bad idea. And he doesn't know enough. So the, the people that he's writing to are elders because they've walked with Christ for a long time. And then we look at what they do as overseers or pastors. This is self-explanatory. They care for Christ's sheep. These people are looking out for the lambs of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they do. So who they are, elders, what they do, they are overseers. Now, I say this all the time. So we're looking at an aspect of church government. Another term for church government is church polity. This is church officers within church government. I say all the time that the church does not save, only Christ saves. I believe that. Now, here's a big heart, however. Though the body can never usurp the rights of the head, I think in the church of my youth they do, but that's another sermon as well. Though Christ saves and the church doesn't save, that doesn't mean the church is useless. So a lot of times in our country, because we're so individualistic, we think. If we were to have a cataclysm happen like Israel is happening, you, you would watch how fast we, were, we congealed together. But that's just my own opinion. So right now, in times of prosperity, we're very individualistic. So we don't really value corporateness of Christianity. But the, the, we want the Bible to be our rule for faith and practice. Christ saves us, but it doesn't mean the church is meaningless. We have been saved by being joined to the head. The moment we're joined to our head, Jesus Christ, we are mystically joined to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, mystically so. So every other true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are joined to. It doesn't matter if they're Episcopalian, Methodist, or Baptist. If they love Christ, we are joined to them spiritually. But when you look at the church, even though it's not the gospel, I want you to think of this. Almost all of the New Testament epistles are written to some church, some visible church, to the church at Philippi, to the, church, to the churches of Galatia, to the church at Corinth. So people are like, well, I'm a Christian. I'm just going to sit at the house, and I don't have to be a member of a church. That's not true. That's not true. Sometimes I hear this. Well, my cousin Vinny is a super-duper-duper-duper Christian. They read the Bible all the time, but they just don't go to church. I don't mean to pick on your cousin Vinny, but they're not reading the Bible. Because if they were reading the Bible, they'd be going to the church unless they can't go to the church. So what we're looking at here is an aspect of the doctrine on the church, ecclesiology, and more particular, it's the government of the church. These are the men that, and I hate, they're men. Ladies can't be office bearers. I know there's a debate in whatever enlightened people, but we, need, we want to read the Bible. So these are men that have been given by Christ to the church as a gift, Ephesians 4, I think 10 or 11, to help guide the church. In, in a ministerial way, not magisterial. They can't make up rules. They have to minister the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we're looking at. We're looking at these particular uh, men that he's giving these, this advice to. I want to read a couple of things in case you're thinking, well, Pastor, you talk fast. I don't really believe it about the church, and I, I certainly don't believe it about any kind of authority, office bearer in the church. Um, okay, Ephesians 1, verse 22. God put all things in subjection under his, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, okay, all Christian girls who are not married, 
and, you, and you're, you're hoping to get married and you're going to plan your marriage text, you can tell me, you can make hand signals, what text are you going to choose for your marriage sermon? Oh, look, Ephesians 5. That's exactly right. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, everybody who's a husband here, I want you to listen. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. So Christ saves. He saves to, to bring us to himself, to join us to the triune God, but to join us together. This is this. Church people, here's how you help other church people for their edification and for the glory of Jesus. And then when we talk about these particular presbyteroi, episcopoi, they have a certain level of authority. And it's a ministerial. They minister Christ to them. Here, Hebrews 13. This is God, the Holy Spirit, telling church people, obey your leaders and submit to them. You're not even supposed to say, I'm not supposed to say this to you. If I didn't believe in the Bible, which I do, I would never say that. You're not, you, you shouldn't use the submit word, but God uses it. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Is our submission to authority seen when we agree with their authority or their rule or when we disagree? When is your, when is your submission to divine authority over you proven? When you agree with their dictates or when you disagree with their dictates? Right, right. Uh, these, so church polity is not the gospel of salvation, but it is very important. And we're looking at an aspect. And, and when we look at these two church officers, elders and deacons, I will say this. Non-Bible-based forms of Christianity are very, diff- are very dangerous. And as, as applied to this, I think they reveal other things. A church that does not care what the Bible says on church government, and particularly church officers, and they feel liberty to invent, in, which, and then that means a multiplication of church officers, don't be surprised that they have no problem uh, inventing a doctrine of sacraments, a doctrine of gospel, a doctrine of the law, which is antithetical to the Bible. What do I mean? Where are popes in the Bible? Where are New Testament priests, except for priest Christ or the priesthood of believers? Where are they? Where are sextons in the Bible? Where are monks in the Bible? Where are friars in the Bible? Well, you're going to say that's a picayune thing. And I will say, again, it's not the gospel, but it's indicative of something larger. When you get away from sola scriptura Christianity and you say, what's the big deal if they have priests that make sacrifice? What's the big deal if they have Abba, Father, Pope? They're revealing that they're not adhering to a Bible-based form of Christianity. And if you feel free to make up church officers, you will feel free to make up a different gospel, which is what we see. So I would say this. Sola Scriptura, beloved, certainly with the gospel, but Sola Scriptura, even in church government, Sola Scriptura in everything. Okay, now, let's look at the content of his counsel. There's a general theme that runs through the content of the Apostle Paul's uh, counsel, and I've I've said this probably every sermon, so I want to be careful that I'm not 
uh, inordinately redundant. Everything Paul does is attached to the gospel. Everything. He says it. For, well, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I, did, I do everything for the cross. Galatians chapter 5, everything for the cross. And he weaves it through his advice to the elders. He says, I, I never stop telling you to repent of your sins and believe in Christ, and, and I'm going to run my race for, for, the, for the gospel of grace. All of these directives that he gives to his fellow servants and how to serve, they have to flow out of our union with God in Christ, which means that that's affected by the gospel, and it's for Christ. So it's from Christ, but it's for Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 20, it's not me who lives. Everything I'm doing, whether I live or die, Philippians 1, is because of him. So sometimes the debate in good works between the, the Protestant and the Roman Catholic is, are these meritorious unto, that's the Roman Catholic view, do these help pay for my justification slash salvation, or are, 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 they, are, are they indicative of? Are they, are they fruits uh, of? If we, if we are doing our serving of other Christians by our own strength, and it doesn't come from the union of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's not a good work. You can't minister a Christ to, to a person that you don't know. So all of the directives that he's going to say, suffer for Christ's sake, serving God's people, be humble for Christ's sake before God's people, we have to be joined to Jesus. So this is for the glory of God as manifested to us in the gospel. So I would say that by way of general admonition. Look, repentance towards God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that Paul will give now. Now the first general um, imperative that he tells the elders how they should minister to Christ's people, I would argue, is found generally in verses 18 through 27. Um, in 18 through 27, the primary thing that he's going to tell these elders is, I want you to serve Christ, Christ's people, in the face of suffering. I want you to prepare for suffering, but I want you to minister Jesus Christ to Christ's people while you suffer. And he tell, that's the first directive. And I would say that's probably the overarching lesson. If I were to, to not subdivide it, I would say that's the primary lesson. This is in Acts chapter 14, John chapter 6. Jesus says, in this life you will have much what? That's this. That's this. And Paul goes back strengthening all the church, saying we, through many tribulations we must, must go before we enter the kingdom of God. So God tells his servants... I want you to prepare to suffer as you minister Christ to other Christians. Now, if you were to think in the modern times, no way. Jesus couldn't be the Jesus of the Bible. Paul couldn't be the Paul of the Bible. There's no megachurch that would put up with this. You, you're not, you, you, you would purify that megachurch down to, I don't know, about 50 people. They're not putting up with this. You're not supposed to tell Christians, prepare to suffer and die for Christ's sake. What are you supposed to tell them? Your best life now. You can be fabulously healthy. You can be fabulously wealthy. There's no such thing as holiness. Everything is great. And uh, don't worry about sin. And just have an easy, squeezy time. Um, that's not this. Now, when, you, when he says, prepare to suffer, I want you to see something. There are a couple of things going on. This does not mean, when he says to the elders, 
with suffering and trials and tears, you're going to have to serve other people. It doesn't mean that our suffering pays for our salvation. I've said this many times before. A person in my family, as they were dying, told me, is my disease and suffering redemptive for me, salvific for me, or for someone else? We do not pay for our salvation. We don't pay for any of our justification. If you think your good works are saving for your sin, you need to see me. No, 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 no. Jesus paid it all. Tetelestai. It is finished. So Jesus, is, he is the, the complete grounds, the merits of our salvation. So there's no cost. However, there is a cost to discipleship. So there's no cost to our salvation, but there is a cost to our discipleship. Um, in, in particular, there will be a cost to our leadership as we, as we minister Christ to those who we, we, serve, um, we serve. So in the cost of discipleship, Jesus puts it this way. If you're my disciple, if you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, we live in, the Bible says, a present evil age. You don't have to doubt me. If you don't believe me, you have a, you have a different eschatological view. It doesn't even matter. I don't even care what you say your view is. All you have to do is look, look outside, turn on the news. You have the same eschatological view that I have. The world has gone mad. And we live in a mad world, but we minister Christ, and we serve Christ, and we live for Christ in a world God mad. And so in this world God mad, what is the cost of being a disciple? This? Suffering and opposition and even death. Jesus puts it this way. If you are mine... You have to pick up your what every day? Cross. And do what? Die. This again, again, seminaries tell people, don't ever tell people this. No one's going to come to your church. You can't have a five bazillion dollar building if you tell people that. But Jesus is not about building big bazillion buildings. He was running people off. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Boom. There goes most of them. And the rest of the guys said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So Jesus is not about getting numbers of goats. He wants to save sheep. And so there is a cost to discipleship in this antichrist world. And it's this. So you pick up your cross, to die to yourself, follow me. And then related to the subject before us, this advice to these elders, there's a cost to leadership. There's a cost. There's a cost. There's a song. There's, you've got to pay the cost to be the boss. It's a blues song. Everybody's a boss in some way or another. Everybody's a, everyone is a superior in some way or another. And sometimes when you're not the boss or the superior in a thing and you're the inferior, you think, oh, it must be nice, it must be nice. What's the saying about the head that wears the crown? I forget what it is. It's tedious or wearisome or troublesome or vexome, something like that. So when you come here, Paul says to the elders, you've got to get ready to suffer if you're going to live for Christ and serve Christ to other Christians, you have to. You have a place of leadership. <clears throat> Every mother and father knows this. So when you're single or you get married and there's no kiddos and you, you have like, I don't know, troubles in your, and it's, you have troubles as, as parents without kids, you have, as marrieds without kids, you have troubles. But then when you have kids, little or big, your, your responsibility level goes to the moon. Am I not right? You have this little critter that if you don't go in and do whatever, they, they need you to, to live. 
So you have a greater degree of authority now because you're over these bitsies or, or you're attached to the big ones and you have greater levels of responsibility, which means the greater probability that you will suffer. That's why Paul says don't get married when, when the world is... If I were in Israel right now and a young couple were to say to me, I want to get married, I would say don't get married right now. This is the first Corinthians chapter 7. Because you don't get married and have babies when you're going to die. Because it's going to multiply your pain and your anguish. And so like these guys, when you have greater authority, you have greater responsibility, and then you have the greater potential that you are going to suffer pain. And so that's these fellows. So he doesn't sugarcoat it. He does not sugarcoat it. In fact, when I got into the ministry, my pastor tried to stop me from getting in the ministry by hitting me with everything under the sun. You're going to go through this. You're going to go through that. You're going to go through this. Oh, wow, what a bummer. What a total bummer. And what was he doing? Was he trying to stop me? He's telling me the truth up front. Jesus says, count the cost before you come to me. Sometimes Christians, and I understand why, they say, come to Jesus. Everything's going to be swell. Everything will be great after that. Well, if you come to Christ savingly, the Father loves you, the Spirit's inside of you, the Son prays for you, it's wonderful. But beyond that, what happens? Your unbelieving family are going to hate your guts. You're not going to uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving anymore. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are against you. The battle has begun in earnest. And Jesus says, don't come to me if you think this is an easy, squeezy deal. I want everything. I want your life. Everything. And so he tells these elders, if you're going to serve me, serve Christ, you have to serve Christ's people in suffering. And then part of the suffering we'll see is from wolves out inside of the church. But that's what he says, that there is a, there is a cost. The other thing I want to bring out in verse 23 is this. He says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, bonds and afflictions wait me. And he talks about um, not counting his life dear. Not only does he tell the elders to consider their serving uh, with the potential of suffering. He says he wants, he wants these people to serve Christ's people to the end of their race. He talks about it being a race or running my course or journey. Many of us think about like, um, I, I did this. If I can hit 18, get out of the house, go to college. If I can get 22, get out of college, get married. You have a point that you're running at, a goal. If I could get my undergraduate, if I could get my master's, you have a goal that you're running at. And then you think when you hit that goal, what I don't know what you think. I did know, like, wow, boy, if I could do this, and then it's easy squeezy from there out. That's not the best way to think of your Christian service. What Paul wants the people to think of their Christian service is that it's a lifelong race. It's a lifelong race. I... I want you to think about serving Jesus and you're going to serve him all the way to the the finish line in the course. And when do we cross the finish line as Christians? When we die. We die. When I go to see folks that are are in their homes, in their 80s, in their 90s, I told this to Mona yesterday. I went to see someone and I said, I always get ministered to way more than I think I do ministry to anybody else because here they are, they, they're in a wheelchair. What can they do in a wheelchair? Oh, they can do a lot in a wheelchair. What can they do in a wheelchair? They can pray in a wheelchair. They can squeak out a few words of Jesus to you while they're in the wheelchair as you are getting up ready to use your strong legs to walk out of that place. And what are you learning? 
Here this old woman is serving Jesus, and she's 90. This is a way better way to think of your Christian life and your Christian service. So don't think, when I, I make it to 65, and then I can retire. I went to Tallahassee a couple weeks ago. They had a 50-year anniversary for that church there. And they, they listed all the ministers. One of the first ministers did 40 years in Philadelphia as a pastor in one church, 40 years. He retires. He comes to Tallahassee for eight. He leaves Tallahassee, goes to South Florida, and does another eight. You're thinking, this guy is going to be ancient. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Paul tells these guys, I'm serving to the end of my race. I want you to serve to the end of your race. We would be better servants to fellow Christians if we thought like that. That I'm going to minister Christ to people that God put in my life for life. For life. So my kids are in their 30s. My kids are giving me grandchildren. Is the ministry that I have for my kids different than when they were five? Yes, But do I still look at my kids? I'm going to minister Jesus to you. As different as it's going to look. And I'm going to minister Jesus to you right up till I'm dead. That's the better way to think. So when you have a longer term perspective of Christ's people, you tend to be gentler. If you think I got five seconds, you're going to come out with a hammer. But if you think, you know what? As long as Jesus gives me life, I'm going to minister Christ to you. And so when he talks about the end of his life, he he not only wants the elders to serve with a lifelong perspective, he wants us to minister Christ to other people, and this is key, with an eternal perspective. This is Jonathan Edwards. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyes. To look at other people, they are eternal. They have an eternal soul. You are eternal. He talks about the ministry that he's received from Jesus. You have received a ministry from Jesus. When I was in seminary, one of the ministers was pounding the pulpit. Remember your, remember your calling. Remember your commissioning, especially when you're getting your teeth kicked in and you want to quit. Not that that would ever happen. Remember your commissioning. You have been commissioned. You have been called by the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have received the service from him. But think like this. I will serve other people for Christ's sake for him. That's this. To the glory of Christ to hear from Jesus, well done, my good and faithful servant. I don't want to miss, and I know I, I don't want to go too, too long, but I do want to jump down to particularly his advice to the elders concerning the wolves. So when he says to the elders that, um, he, he says in verse uh, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopoi, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Look at this, the language he uses. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples. What God says to his elders, his shepherds, who care for his sheep, I want you to remember that my sheep live in a time, in an epoch, in a place, I would say this, almost perpetual danger. Almost perpetual danger. If you think, well, if you think that God's people live in a state of regular, perpetual, religious, and moral danger, you're going to be stressed out of your gourd if you're the guy who's watching out for them. Guess what? Bingo! 
bingo, ministers have nervous breakdowns all the time. And then you think, what's this guy have a nervous breakdown for? You eat fried chicken and play golf? What's the problem? If you're, if you're, a, if you're a fake minister, you do. If you're a real minister, Paul says it. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4. I'm all day long, I'm concerned for the church because we exist in this place of wolves around the sheep. Now, in, in the context, are, would the wolves be people of adherence of another religion? Yes, but that's not this. The wolves that are out to devour Christ's lambs, where do they come from? That's exactly right. This is false Christians coming, proclaiming a false form of Christianity. This is where, again, this, you, you tell people this, forget about it. Jesus can't be the Jesus of the Bible because you can't get five people in a house cat. You can't be Apostle Paul. You cannot tell people this. You can't say there's a false form of Christianity and there are false Christians. What kind of loving, loving is that? God, the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to say it. These are false brothers coming up from inside of the church that say, hi, I'm a Christian. I've been gifted by Jesus to teach you a better way, a better gospel. And the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to these guys, you better be watching this flock. And what that means is you're with the flock. And that also means you know the Bible. You know the Bible. I watched a, a woman with another guy, and he was quizzing her on Islam. And he said, what's the five pillars of Islam? And she was in Australia, and she didn't know. I don't know what they are either, but I'm not a Muslim. And, and he said, if you're a Muslim, shouldn't you know the five pillars of Islam? And I thought to myself, that seems fairly reasonable. If you're a Christian elder and you don't know the Bible, guess what? You should not be a Christian elder. If you're a shepherd of sheep that are, is designed to lead the people in the right way and to keep them from the wrong way, you better know the Bible. And you better be with God's sheep. And when you see... You, when you see anti-Christian things coming in, religiously or morally, you have to say, pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. Get away from Christ's people, or Christ's people, you get away from them. Titus chapter 1, I want to say verse 9. So you be, have to be able to refute those who are rebellious. And it, I, I want to say a few things. We'll end with this admonition. And, and Remember the application, not just to ministers. Fathers, I'll talk to every husband and every father. I said this to a young husband the other day, and he'll probably never come back to the church. If you're a husband, you are religiously responsible for the religious welfare of your wife. So if what I said about a minister, an elder, or better knowing the Bible, if you're a husband, your wife not, ought not to know more Bible than you. You say, well, I work more than she does. I don't know about that, but you ought to know the Bible. If you're responsible to lead her religiously and care for her religiously, that means you've got to know the Bible. And so when she says, honey, I'm, I'm watching WW Goofball on the YouTube, you've got to know that he's a goof. And then that means you have to tell your wife what? It begins with N and ends with O. No. And does that mean you're like a tyrant? No, it means you love her. Honey, don't watch this garbage. This is not the gospel. This is not true. So not as, this is not just ministers. And then if you're the dad, is the, your mom is the wife with the kid all day. I, I get that, but you're responsible. Adam, where art thou? Adam, where art thou? 
then your kids, if they come and say, what's what? What's this? Is this okay? You ought to be able to say yes or no. And if you ought to know enough to say, who, who can I find out? Yes or no. Am I right with that or no? And to tell your kid, not everyone that says Jesus is a real Christian. False teachers are false Christians. Jesus says, beware of false teachers. Beware. Matthew 24, Matthew chapter 7. Outwardly, they look like what? They have English accents because it suckers in Americans every time. And Jesus says, beware of the, the leaven of the what? The Pharisees which is the adding the work of your works to Christ's work. This is a Romans 9, Romans 10, Galatians 1 and 2. That's, that's what he says watch out for. So if you're a dad, you're a husband, you're a minister, you're an elder, know what the devil's gunning for with your Bible. So these ravenous wolves, this is real. This is, we're not just bitty-bopping through life like, hey, isn't this a nice little thing that we do on Sunday? This is spiritual war. That's what's going on. And if you're, if you're a religious leader of any kind, you're in, the, you're in the Lord's army. And they look out. These are people from within the church. This is why they're the most dangerous. I'm not afraid of Hinduism. I'm more afraid of false forms of Christianity coming in the church, attacking Christ's lambs. That's what's going on. And here's another thing about false teachers. They're more popular in the church than Orthodox teachers. Do you believe that? Oh, yeah, way more. I guarantee you, uh, N.T. Wright sells gobs of books. Uh, Doug Wilson, gobs of books. You like him because he's good on marriage. Bad on the gospel, but great on marriage. Oh, come on. Can you be good on marriage if you're bad on the gospel? Say yes or no. Please, someone say no. If you're wrong on the gospel, take everything else with a bulldozer and put it in the... Like, I mean, come on. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and appear in his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, and no one will come to your church. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They want to have their ears tickled. They'll accumulate themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They'll turn away from their ears and the truths and turn to myths. False teachers are way more popular in the church than an orthodox preacher. Why? Because the preacher's telling him the truth. What's the truth? <laughs> We're sinners and we need Jesus as a savior. How's life going to be? It's going to be brutal. Love Jesus and then you die and go to heaven. And what does the false teacher say? You want to talk about finances? You want to talk about this? You want to talk about, oh, no, we don't do sin here. We don't do holiness. Don't worry about that. I'll give the people what they want. And if you give the people what they want, the people will give you what they want, which is cash. And they're way more popular. So there's almost a way that I know a guy's a false teacher if he's selling a bazillion books. The Puritans weren't loved when they were Puritans. They're loved now because we love them. But they were hated. So false teachers, watch out for them because they're wolves. They're out to eat you. They're false Christians. They're way popular. And the other thing I mentioned is that they are true legalists. This is beware of the Pharisee, the leaven of the Pharisees. These are real legalists. They always add their own covenant faithfulness. Choke, you could, oh, covenant faithfulness. Covenant gnomism. I'm going to be super duper faithful. Oh, Jesus, yeah, Jesus is good. But you got you to really do these things to get to heaven. Beware of that. 
You say, well, pastor, why are you so stressed out of your mind? Because people don't go to heaven because of that. And part of the job of the elder, and then when the elder says that, what will you think of that person? What a loon. What a loon. Can we go to the buffet and beat the Baptists up there? But that's part of the calling. You've got to deal with that. You've got to pay the cost to be the boss. If your wife thinks, hey, I think, honey, you're wrong on that, or your kids think, hey, dad, I think you're wrong on that, that's part of the cost to be the boss. You've got you you to deal with being not liked for a little bit because you're trying to protect them <laughs> from this. And then they, they have the leaven of Pharisees. And the other thing is they have the leaven of the Sadducees. And what's the leaven of the Sadducee? This is the, the book of Jude. Eat, drink, and what? When I see these guys, they weigh 300 pounds. They're sucking down all the whiskey. They're smoking cigars like it's going out of style. This is eat, drink, and be merry. This, this is the leaven of the, of the Sadducee. They're living for this world, and you can see it. Like, are, you, are you serious? Again, some of these guys, and they're smart guys, some of these guys do, for your, for your sanctification, they, they say, look to your justification. When I see these guys, I already know what's going to happen. They're going against the doctrine of sanctification. They're, they're pressing the doctrine of justification beyond what it should bear. Oh, don't no, it's not sanctification. It's not work out your sanctification. It's look to your justification. I already know what's going to happen. You're cashing in your first wife, which is your real wife, for your girlfriend. Because you're not fighting the fight. It's a species of the, 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 the leaven of the Sadducee. You're, you're a worldling. You're living for the flesh. And the Bible tells the elders, you have to watch out for, for, the, for God's people. Why? Because God's people are not studying this stuff all day. You are studying it all day to protect them. And again, as I say, part of it is you will be considered a loon if you say this. Because we live in times that Paul says in 1 Timothy. People are not going to put up with this anymore. But God's people will. So when you look at all of this business, I said it earlier, too much is given, much is what? Beloved, we are all our brother's keeper. If you are a Christian and you are attached to any other Christian, you exist to serve them. This is a call for Christians to really love other, like really, and to care for them. And I mean spiritually care for them. And part of this is to care for them enough to be courageous and open our mouth and say, that's dangerous. Please come back to the right way. That, that, that's a scary thing. It, it's super duper scary. But it's loving. And it's like Christ. And the last thing I want to say is this. He tells the elders, remember that the people that you minister to Jesus purchased them with his blood. You know one of the ways we would be the best kind of Christians to, to help our other Christians? If we thought higher of other Christians. A lot of times, who's the person we think highest of all? And if you think super high about yourself, what does that usually coincide with? You don't think super high of other people. If a if an oriental king came to you and said, I want you, servant, to care for my daughter or my son, how would you care for them? Royally. Because they're royalty. Beloved, if we could look at fellow Christians, no matter what they look like on the outside, and we thought, my Jesus died for them. They belong to my Jesus. They're royal. Boy, Wouldn't we serve them better? 
May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.